you will turn your attention to the New Testament reading. If you have your Bible, you'll find that in the book of Revelation, chapter 16. We're going to be reading verses 17 through chapter 17, verse 18. If you don't have your Bible with you, you can find it in your bulletin, I believe. Is it printed? On the scripture sheet, that's where it is. Hear the word of the Lord. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written written a name of mystery, Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman, drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. The dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. 
These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they are the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's return to the scripture that we read, long scripture, the longest we've read since we've been in the study in Revelation. Uh, but the sermon will not be any longer because of that. <laughs> Revelation chapter 16, begin with verse 17. Before we go there, we've come to the part of the worship where we hear from the Word of God. Paul said that all true preaching was not a demonstration. Now, this was the Apostle Paul who could preach. Great intellect, the greatest theologian of the New Testament. And yet he said that his preaching was to be a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't his oratorical ability. It wasn't his ability as a genius. It was by the power of the Holy Spirit. Last evening, a friend told me about a conversation he had with another friend who had attended Independent back in the 80s and 90s. He talked about how he came to faith at that time. And he said, you know what John Sartell was preaching then and telling us was going to happen is happening now. Now, I wouldn't have thought about that that much, except that was the second time I'd heard that in one week. I have no power to foretell the future. Then how did my preaching in the 80s and 90s speak about what is taking place today? It doesn't have anything to do with John Sartell. What they were describing is what takes place when we read and hear God's word. This book reveals what God is doing. It reveals his word, what he's doing in our world. This book reveals our innermost being. Sometimes we're 
convicted of our sin in a very powerful way. It's not John Sartell that does that. It's the Word of God. I know that feeling. I, I often say to you, I have to live with this sermon during the week. You're going to live with it on Sunday. It's the Word of God revealing not only our sins, but revealing Jesus Christ. How would we know about the incarnation and the cross and the resurrection if it wasn't for His Word? This, this Word reveals what is taking place in the world. I have said to you many times, uh, the book, in this study of Revelation, when I've said it affected me more than when I taught through it two years ago, teaching a small group Bible. So I said, the, this teaching through this book and now preaching through this book has affected me more than anything I've done in 40 years. Why is that? Somebody will say, well, how's it affected you? Because one way is that I look around and I see what is happening in the world with more understanding than I did before this study. People, that's why the preaching of this pulpit, or any pulpit, must tenaciously adhere to Scripture. It discloses God's truth about our lives, about our families, about our world. It's the revealing of God's Word through the power of the Holy Spirit. Having said that, let's now pray and ask the Father to teach us in the power of the Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before you as your priests this morning. Not, a, not just one priest, not just two priests, not Bryant and John, but this whole congregation, Father. We read in the New Testament that we are a congregation of priests called to be priests by you, our Father, ordained to be priests through the power of your Holy Spirit. And we come bringing our families, our marriages, our children. We come bringing our neighbors before you, our city before you. But especially today, Father, we bring Elizabeth Mednikow before you and we pray for healing. We pray that this surgery will accomplish what it was designed to do. We pray that you would keep the pain at bay. Bless Jay as he takes care of her, comforts her. We pray for the Cruz family, Father, that you will wipe away their tears. Bring your omnipotent comfort to bear upon their deep, deep sorrow. We pray for Kaki especially. We pray, Father, for John and Kate Morrison. Our Father, we pray that you would bring a peace, a calm to Kate beyond imagination. Cause her to look forward to what you've prepared for her. I pray that she will say with David, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. 
bring comfort to that family. And now, Father, we pray that as we open your word, you would teach us. John Sartell cannot teach so that we'll understand what's going on in the world around us. He can't teach so that we will know the sins in our hearts and know the joy and the power of Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we're your children, and we're asking you once again this morning, teach us, teach us, Father, through the power of your Spirit. Tell us the story one more time. For the glory of your Son, we pray. Amen. The rise and fall of the great secular city. In chapter 16, we have seen seven angels with seven bowls. Those bowls filled with the wrath and judgment of God. The angels poured, we saw in the past weeks, the angels poured six bowls of God's wrath. They poured it out on what God said would be a final judgment. It's not like the judgments that we saw with the seals and trumpets. These, these seven bowls were the final judgments. Last week we looked at the fifth and sixth bowls. One of the children in this congregation, elementary age, made my day last Sunday. When we came to the end of the message, she turned to her parent and said, what about the seventh bowl? He didn't tell us about the seventh bowl. She was listening. Well, well, that's where our scripture takes up this morning. The seventh angel poured out his seventh bowl. Look at it. Verses 17 through 19 of chapter 16. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city, now notice singular, the great city had never, had, had never been since, no, excuse me. The great city was split into three parts. And the cities of the nation. You see singular city, and then you see cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. We are told that the seventh bowl of wrath was poured out on the great city of Babylon. The next two chapters, chapters 17 and 18, are about Babylon. Babylon has only been mentioned one time previously in the book of Revelation. But now the city is the object of God's wrath in the seventh bowl. It's the subject of the next two chapters. In Revelation, now I want to sum it up at the beginning. This is where we're headed. In Revelation, Babylon is a symbol it's a symbol now of a godless, sexually immoral, secular, 
materialistic culture. And we're just in the first few minutes, we're taking the time to get our minds around this. What does, what does Babylon signify and why? To understand Babylon's meaning in Scripture, we must go back to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Look at Genesis 11:4 on your Scripture sheet. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now that's the beginning of Babylon. Nimrod, if you go back to Genesis 11, read it this afternoon. It's an interesting chapter. Nimrod was a descendant of Noah. He was a mighty hunter, a warrior, a ruler, a builder of cities. He was the founder and builder of Babel. He intended, why did he do it? He intended to build a great city whose power would reach to the heavens. He wanted his power to threaten God. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote that Nimrod bragged that he would hold God accountable if God ever destroyed the world again, again like he did at the flood. He would show God. He would build a tower to the very heavens. Well, Babel became Babylon, geographically and historically. Remember Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel? He was a Nimrod-like character, king of Babylon. He was a warrior, a leader, a builder of cities, an architect. Under his reign, Babylon became the center of world power and beauty. Remember him? He was so much like Nimrod. He was full of himself. He gave himself the credit. Look at Daniel 4.30 on your scripture sheet. And the king answered and said, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Did you see that? Is this, didn't I do this? I built this city. It's a monument to my power, a monument to my ingenuity. Is this city not a monument to my glory? Look what I did. Read the rest of the story this afternoon in Daniel. In the Jewish world and life view, in the typical Jew in John's day and before that, Babylon became a symbol, a symbol of a godless city. Whatever the city was, if it was godless, it was a Babylon. A, a city that strived to be autonomous and throw off God's sovereignty and throw off any binding from the law of God. Well, in John's day, Babylon was no more. Babylon fell. It was destroyed. We've seen this before. It was destroyed in 539 BC. In John's day, the apostles thought of Rome as a modern day Babylon. If you had asked John, John, is, is, is Babylon fallen? He would have said, well, you know it has. And if you would have said, well, is there another Babylon? He would have said, yes, there is. Rome is Babylon. 
Rome was the sexually immoral, perverse, materialistic, powerful city that Babylon had been. Look at 1 Peter 5.13. We read, she, this is Peter writing, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, that's the church, sends you greetings and so does Mark. Well, Peter, we know, was not in Babylon. He was in Rome. He and John Mark were in Rome. But he's sending, he's saying it's a cryptic sentence. It's, it's, it's a cryptic symbol. He was saying, you know where we are. We're in the new Babylon. We will see that Babylon was used in Revelation to describe the city of autonomous man, the godless city, the city of the Antichrist, the city associated with the beast. It was not, it was not just Babylon of antiquity. It was not just Rome in that day. It was Corinth. It was Athens. It was Ephesus. It was New, it's New York, London, Beijing, Moscow, Las Vegas, San Francisco. Leon Morris, a great New Testament scholar of the 20th century, said, it was no city, and it was every city. That's why, as this bowl was poured out, it was poured out on the city, and it said the cities. In the seven seals and seven trumpets, we saw events of rebellion and war and persecution and natural disasters and judgments that have taken place in every century. But as we go through the book of Revelation, as we've come toward the end, more attention is given to what will happen just before the return of Christ. What will happen with the complete and final judgment? That was the focus of the seven bowls. With the appearance of the great beast, the false Christ, the Antichrist. Remember, from, he, was, he was created by the dragon in chapter 13. We see the apex of evil in the world. It's evil on steroids. Babylon is a symbolic city. That's what it is here. It's a symbolic city of secularism, humanism, hedonism, and man-centered power. Then after the seals, after the trumpets, after the seven visions, we see seven angels and these seven bowls, bowls of plagues and judgments and the wrath of God. And they're poured out where? They're poured out on Babylon. Not just one specific place but the worldwide city of Babylon. Now, in the final six chapters of Revelation, we will see two dominant subjects. The first subject is the final judgment of the world. The second subject is the final destiny of the church. We'll see two symbolic cities. Babylon represents, the city of Babylon represents the secular world. The, new, the second city is the New Jerusalem, represents the church. Each city is symbolized by a woman. Babylon is represented by a glamorous prostitute. Jerusalem is rep represented by a beautiful bride. At the end of the 16th chapter, we saw a brief synopsis of the destruction of Babylon 
when the seventh angel poured out his bowl. Chapter 17 begins with one of the seven angels telling John to follow him, and he will show him the details about this great prostitute of Babylon. In a way, think about it this way. In a way, chapter 17 is a prequel to what we read about the destruction of Babylon at the end of 16. He says there in at the beginning of the first verse of 17, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. That she is every secular city of man. It comes out here. because He said she's seated on the seas and rivers of the world. It's not just one place. It's just not on the Euphrates. It's worldwide. Look at verse 15. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. It's multiple places. Get that in your head. The prequel begins with the angel taking John to see another vision. Look at verse 3. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. Now look at what he sees. This is again one of these visions that's so strange. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, a red beast. And the beast was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her head was written a name of mystery. Look what was written across her forehead. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. He calls the prostitute sitting on this great beast, Babylon. Here's a glamorous woman. Her gown is scarlet and purple. She's adorned with pearls and jewels and gold. She holds in her hand a great gold goblet. This is a scene filled with glamour. This woman looks appealing. The women of the world would say, I want her gown. I want what she's wearing. I want the pearls. I want the diamonds. I want the gold. I want that gold goblet that's in her hand. But what's in the gold goblet? It's filled with the wine of abominations and sexual immorality. Who is she? She's wearing a title on her forehead. Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes. Go back to ancient Babylon. That's what she was. Go to Rome. That's what she was. From age to age, Babylon is still with us. Nimrod's vision is still with us. Well, she's sitting on the great beast that has seven heads and ten horns. And you recognize this. This is the exact description of the Antichrist that rose up out of the sea in chapter 13. But what's that telling us? Where is she seated? She is seated on this great beast. It's carrying her along. 
The scene means to tell us that she's carried along by the demonic power of Satan. We talked about this before. Behind the, behind the evil in every day, there's, there's this character. Not of imagination, but in reality. His name is Satan. The angel of light. The demonic The seven heads designate the indestructibility of the beast. The ten horns speak of his incredible power. He looks just like Satan. Satan had ten horns. He had seven heads. But still focus on the woman. The angel tells us that the seven heads... Or the seven hills, the seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Those seven heads are symbol, have a, another symbol meaning. You need to know that if you had lived in John's day and you had said to John, I've been to that great city, the, seven, the, the city of seven hills. He would have known what everyone in that day knew. You had been to Rome. Rome, was the, as the great city, was located on seven hills. The seven kings refer to the Caesars, and I'm not going into all the detail this morning. That seven kings refer to the Caesars and rulers of Rome. Five had already passed. One was on the throne, and there was yet one to come. And he says to John in there, he said, this calls for a mind of wisdom. And he's saying, hey, John, you know who this is. You know who the kings are and you know who the city is that's sitting on seven hills. And then, and then the attention of the angel switches to the beast. It says he was and is not. It refers to the fact, and we've seen this before, that there are many demonic rulers. There are many Antichrist in every century. Remember the words of John in 1 John 2, 18? He said, children, it's the last hour. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now any, many Antichrists have come. There's one great one coming. Did you know there's already been Antichrists that look just like him? He says here that he said there have been seven, and this is the eighth. Well, seven is a number of completion. The, the Antichrists are complete. Here's one final, the eighth. And he's the ultimate. He's beyond the perfection. He's beyond the completion. He is, there's never been an Antichrist like him. And then we have this strange verse. Uh, strange scene. Look at it. It's in, it's in verse 15. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. Now, this is strange. Do you see it? We have this beast. He's empowering this autonomous, wicked, immoral culture called Babylon. But. 
ultimately, he's going to turn and this, he's going to destroy this woman. Look at it, verse 16. And the ten horns, as you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out this purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. What's he saying? This is brilliant. It's not hard to understand when you think about it. Every civilization that follows the spirit of the Antichrist will eventually rot and fall from within. The same forces that built the civilization, the same evil forces that built the civilization will destroy it. The culture that thinks about it. Think about this. The culture that builds its commerce, its government, its labor, its education, its music and arts and transportation. When they build that on the wine of ungodly principles of the great harlot, when they build that on the principles that are against God's principles, eventually, eventually it will fall. The wine of the ungodly principles of the great harlot will be destroyed by the very evil that drove her along. That's what will happen to the worldwide Babylon, the city of secularism and humanism, the great harlot. She'll be destroyed by the same, very same satanic characteristics that empowered her. The, same, the foundational laws and principles that God established for building a strong and lasting civilization. What God has said in his word. This is, how, this is the foundation of a strong civilization. That does not reward a culture that follows godless, hedonistic, materialistic, immoral guidelines. I hope you begin to understand what I'm saying. Because what we're seeing here. Is what, what we're seeing in this passage is what will happen in this country if we keep going in the same direction we are. The cultures built on godless, self-indulgent philosophy of Babylon will be destroyed by the very people who advocated and joyfully participated in her lifestyle. Here we see Satan is not a lover of mankind. He will tempt her. He'll revel in her disobedience, drive her forward. Revel in her rebellion against God and then will rejoice at her destruction. All right. We're near the end. I want to quickly talk about three characteristics of this culture. The culture of Babylon. First, you see, and it's all through this passage, a moral decadence. She prostitutes herself in worship and service to a sexually self-indulgent hedonism. In John's day, there was the sexually fired culture of Caligula and Nero in Rome. We've talked about this before. There have been such cultures and cities in every generation. But as we look back at that, you know, you, you see, maybe you've seen documentaries about Caligula and Nero 
in the, the evil of that day, the sexual immorality of that day. Are you watching something when you look back and see that, that you've never seen before? No. They don't have anything on our generation. They have nothing on us. Think of our culture celebrities who rush to make sex tapes. Think about the sexual revolution of the 60s that we spoke of recently that has turned into a culture that is driven completely by sexual immorality in every segment of our society. Biblical male and female sexual identity has been redefined. Marriage between male and female has been redefined. We can't watch even television commercials without being confronted by gross sexual immorality. This is our culture. This is where we are. And the amazing thing about it is that we become accustomed to it. We say, well, that's just, just, that's just the way the world is. The woman riding the beast, that's what she represented. The woman riding the beast represented the sordid immorality of Babylon and was named the mother of all prostitutes. Look at her and know that she's a representative of the present culture of New York and Washington and Chicago and Los Angeles and San Francisco and Las Vegas and New Orleans and Miami and just keep on naming the cities. The prostitute of Babylon is all about glamour, not beauty. She was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. Does that say anything to you? Is that not, is that not what drives our culture? Are we not saying that's what, that's what we want? Secondly, so you see a moral decadence. You see a militant godlessness. Maybe you missed this. In that sixth verse, and I saw the woman, she was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. The culture this woman represents as at war with God. In the first century, John would have immediately began just to name the Christians he knew, scores by the hundreds that he knew that had been martyred, cruelly tortured and killed by Rome. We've already been over this. More Christians were killed in the 20th century for their faith than in the first century. Hadn't changed. Somehow we think we haven't seen it here personally up close. We're beginning to feel it. We should be warned by the growing overt hostility to Christ and his church in this country. Robert Cunningham is Dave Pendra's pastor now. He followed me there. Uh, I used to, he has a, an associate named Mark, and I used to tell them, you know, the Lord's going to take me home very soon or soon. And I said, I'm going to escape this. And I said, you two guys, you're going to end up in jail. And I said, you two guys, you're going to be martyred. You keep preaching like you're preaching. And 
Now I've changed. And Robert said to me recently, he said, you used to say it was going to be us. He said, well, if you don't hurry up and get out of here, it's going to be you, Sartell. That's what it's going to be. In this country, we will be arrested for preaching the gospel and preaching God's word. Mark my words, already coming. You see it, it's termed hate speech. The love of Christ in the gospels is called hate speech. It's coming, moral decadence, a militant godlessness, and finally a corrupting materialism. You have to go over into chapter 18, just listen to me for a minute. Uh, in chapter 18, this is what she says, and this is not on your scripture sheet. And she glorified herself and lived in luxury. She said, I sit as a queen. I'm no widow. In mourning, I shall never say, I'll never grieve. I'll never mourn. She's wealthy. She has it all. And, it, and, and the passage is about wealth. And then as the city is about to be destroyed, what happens? All the people that deal with the gold and jewels and pearls and fine linen and purple cloth, they mourn because there's no one now to buy their wares. What you're seeing is a complete economy built on the hedonism, built on the immorality. Does that remind you of anything? Sated. They're sated, filled with the hunger for immorality. Freedom, sexual freedom, completely free from any restraint by God. A militant godlessness, a corrupting materialism, sated. Does the moral decadence, militant godlessness, and corrupting materialism remind you of anything? You understand why Revelation is speaking so directly to our culture? I want to come down. I saw something this week. When I got down, I completed the first 17 verses of of chapter 17. and I said, okay. And then I read the last verse. And it blew me away. I had never seen this before. And it changed the ending of this sermon. Look at verse 18. And the woman you saw is the great city. Now, we know that. The woman is a secular city throughout the whole earth. But then it says, that has dominion over the kings of the earth you see we think about the kings bringing in the ungodly culture the presidents bringing in the ungodly cultures the senators bringing in the ungodly culture people we've just come through an election it's not the kings and the senators that create the culture. It's the culture that create the kings and the senators. That's what this is saying, and it's God's word. 
This is the truth that is often missed. It's not the kings of the earth that have dominion over the secular city. It's a secular city that has dominion over the kings. How come the rulers of the secular city are unrighteous? They've been seduced by the culture. God is saying that the decadent, militant godlessness, materially corrupt society, will produce. That's what produces decadent, militantly godless, and materially corrupted leaders. That's what produces it. Are you looking for leadership today? How can godly leaders be produced from a culture dominated by moral decadence, by hatred for God, and a worship of material wealth? Aren't you glad you came this morning? It's time to sing and to remember that we have a sovereign Christ. And whatever happens, we are safe.